listening to Conversations in Atlantic Theory, a podcast dedicated to books and ideas generated from and about the Atlantic world. In collaboration with the Journal of French and Francophone Philosophy, these conversations explore the cultural, political, and philosophical traditions of the Atlantic world, ranging from European critical theory to the Black Atlantic to sites of indigenous resistance and self-articulation as well as the complex geography of thinking between traditions, inside traditions, and from positions of insurgency, critique, and counter-narrative. Dr. Isaac Jocelyn holds a PhD from the University of Minnesota in Francophone Studies, currently Assistant Professor of Francophone Studies and Global Futures Scholar at Arizona State University he has traveled extensively for research in Francophone Africa, in Ivory Coast, Senegal, Cameroon, Togo, Burkina Faso, Rwanda, and Burundi. His research interests include postcolonial Francophone African literatures and cinemas, aesthetic and theories of representation, theories of cultural hybridity, eco-criticism, Afrofuturism, and African Futurism, as well as pedagogical approaches for teaching African literatures and cultures. He has published scholarly articles on African literature and culture in the International Journal of Francophone Studies, Contemporary French and Francophone Studies, African Literature Today, The French Review, Critical African Studies, Nouvelle Etude Francophone, and others. His first monograph from Ohio University Press, published April 2023, is entitled Afrofuturisms, Ecology, Humanity, and Francophone Cultural Expressions. So we're here today with Dr. Isaac Vincent Jocelyn. We had a whole spiel of how to pronounce his name in the Francophone and Anglophone way, but welcome. We're excited to have you. Um, I'm so excited. I think I mentioned this before we got started. Uh, but before we get into it, if you could just tell us about your book. So um, what brought you to the questions in your book concerns of personal, ethical, philosophical um, in Afrofuturisms. Thank you for having me, first of all. Uh, I'm happy to be here and also excited to have this conversation. Um, so yes, my book, uh, Afrofuturisms, Ecology, Humanity, and Francophone Cultural Expressions, which uh, just came out this past spring from Ohio University Press, is a long project um, that um, initially uh, the idea was uh, I personally came to uh, fatherhood very early in life. And so I had this concern about the future. And as a scholar of Francophone African literature, I found that there were connections between my personal interest in what the future could be and what a lot of Francophone African writers and filmmakers were saying about what the future could also be different from the standard singular dominant narrative that uh, progress will perpetually continue forward along a singular trajectory. Um, and so uh, one of the main ethical concerns that um, 
occupied my mind as I was beginning to develop this project was to be true to the texts themselves, uh, which is uh, difficult to do. Uh, there's a tendency, again, to sort of impose one's perspective as a critic, as a cultural critic. Um, and I really wanted to be very uh, deliberate in the way that I interpreted these texts. And so a lot of that sort of came from a desire to understand more deeply uh, the cultural and philosophical and spiritual perspectives of African writers of Francophone African writers, women, men, filmmakers from different decades. Um, and I do also dabble a little bit in Anglophone writing as well. Um, but really what, what came out of this sort of interest was uh, a recognition that there was an Afrofuturist vein of thought um, that had been developing for a number of decades. First of all, um, in the diaspora, in the U.S. Uh, primarily, and then that this was then being transferred to uh, continental African writing, primarily in the Anglophone context. And I noticed that there was a, a, a lack of representation for French-speaking writers and filmmakers within this discourse on what African futures uh, could potentially be, again, sort of outside or beyond the traditional dominant narrative of, of development and progress. So um, that's sort of the genesis of the project. Um, the questions then about, well, what kinds of alternative futures are being imagined? Uh, the, 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 one of the key questions were, again, to, to be attentive to the, the reality and the lived experience of individuals and people. So thinking about the future was inherently related to questions of childhood, youth, and what are the future potential and possibilities that are available to African youth. Um, I grew up in Cote d'Ivoire, West Africa, uh, during the 1990s. Uh, and so my perspective is really, um, in terms of culture, it, it really sits um, in a kind of in-between state um, in that I have an affinity and an understanding for African cultures and peoples, and yet I also see myself as sort of marginalized within that context. And on the other hand, uh, I have a certain understanding of American culture um, and yet I also feel myself also somewhat marginalized, although less visibly so. Um, and so sort of dabbling with that in-betweenness uh, was, was also uh, an important way to sort of formulate this project in a way that could bring uh, into dialogue these different cultures. So Francophone Africa and then Afrofuturism um, when the Black Panther movie came out with Marvel. Um, it was, you know, all over the media. And I thought, well, this is, you know, a perfect opportunity to sort of, again, try to bring Francophone writers and filmmakers into a more mainstream, dominant, critical discourse. Yeah, uh, that's quite a trajectory. And your upbringing reminds me of 
chapter two <laughs> uh, of the birthing futures, which yeah. um, that is my favorite chapter, by the way. But oh, I have more than three questions, but we will just go in chronological order for now. And so your book is in heavy dialogue with um, Afrotopia by Philip Sar. And I think one of my favorite quotes from the book, which you also um, throw in your book, uh-huh. is the metaphor of the garden yeah. and how um so i'm just going to be paraphrasing but really how in order to have this visual or this african dream it's to think about taking different flowers and having this flower arrangement together i have more of a visual than the wording mm-hmm. um, no that's but that's- I, I did want you to expand on this idea of how we need to rethink how we look at development. And I think that's a really core uh, tenet of your book. We always think about development in terms of economics and in terms of GDP, but we never think about development in a relational way. And that's something that has been like off the table uh, when we come to talk about like African development. So, um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's a, that's a great question um, or or series of questions. Um, and so, yeah, I think maybe where I'll start um, is with a little bit of maybe theoretical framing, and then I'll talk about the metaphor, and then I'll try to get into a little bit more of the details about development as as I as I see it, and as I sort of try to be critical of it in a in a positive and constructive way in my book. So. Uh, first of all, coming from a post-colonialist perspective, um, I was uh, very keenly aware that although we say post-colonial, we continue to operate in primarily and predominantly colonial modes of thinking, um, specifically when it comes to economic development. Um, And I don't know, I think I don't know how specific you want me to be, but uh, I do quote uh, the uh, Kwame Nkrumah's book mm-hmm. on neo-colonialism, uh, which sort of, you know, very early on, I think it was only a matter of years after Ghanaian independence that he mm-hmm. published the book, um, basically speaking about different forms of colonial dominance, primarily through economic modes and whatnot. Um, so. Uh, the idea that the colonial is continually present in the post-colonial sort of feeds into this beautiful metaphor that Felwyn Sar paints in his book Afrotopia, which is initially uh, a refusal of the cadence that is imposed upon uh, different people, populations, regions uh, by this sort of dominant economic discourse that is the reality that we experience to some degree. Uh, And the metaphor of the garden involves picking different pieces. So it's impossible to go back to a pre-colonial state of being. Colonialism has occurred. And also the post-colonial positionality is prospective in that it doesn't yet exist. It's more of a aspirational idea. So from that, you sort of inevitably fall into this idea of mixing and and metissage, which is one of the key components that I do discuss in this, in the second chapter on birthing the future. Um, It, it involves, you know, taking pieces from the the pre-colonial indigenous African civilizations 
and taking pieces from the colonial imposition and the cultural encounter that that spawned, and then taking pieces from a future that is sort of, again, proscriptive, but extends beyond the limits of that uh, colonialist discourse. Um, And picking all those different pieces, really, it it paints a beautiful metaphor um, of how to then sort of possess one's own agency in creating a future. And in terms of development, I think Felwin Saar, um, he does a really, uh, really good job of being very clear um, in how he understands development. And one of the, the, the concepts that I found really useful in developing this book project was his, uh, he uses the term a quantophrenic bias of Western civilization, which is this impetus to continually calculate and quantify um, and convert, um, I won't say all, but most significance and most meaning into something that is ultimately um, an ascription of value. So to, to add, to, to, to numericize, if you will, all these different activities and experiences. So when I, when I read that, I thought, well, it makes perfect sense because when you look at the way that our, our experiences are structured, a lot of times we think in terms of, well, what is the cost? What is the reward? What is the benefit? And all of these sort of numbers, which detracts from other potential experiences, relational experiences that don't involve exchange value, for example, or that involve different um, codes of what value is, uh, not just money, but value in terms of human emotional well-being or human spirituality. Um, and so I, I, I tend to sort of follow a lot of different tangents, but ultimately the goal is to understand how development works in order to deconstruct it and propose alternative modes of progressing uh, that don't necessarily have to be stuck within this framework. Yeah, and that it reminds me of, um, this actually takes me, it makes me think about education um, so the title, We Don't Need No Education, um, and also how you point out to the homo economicus mm-hmm. of economics shouldn't be seen as, you know, our biopower. That's what our life is reduced to, just what we contribute economically, but really how we interact with one another and think about those relational things as opposed to just wealth. So there's two questions coming to mind. One, I'm just going to go for first the education because uh-huh. the second one is about um, this, how the, the media is always putting forth economics is, you know, financial independence. And I mean, anyone who is on the internet of today is seeing how black populations are always talking about economic freedom, financial freedom, financial freedom, liberty equals, but actually the works you've chosen, interestingly enough, they always show how if someone does end up winning the lottery, it's actually more problems, (laughs) Um, you know, they have than just freedom, which makes me think, I think from your analysis of the novels, it makes me think why growing up, we always talked about what what you would do if you won the lottery, right? Right. And, you know, some would say they would go missing. (laughs) Some would say like, oh, you know, I'm going to help everybody out. It was like, 
And then when someone did win the lottery, it was just chaos. It was just ultimate chaos, which was what the movies also showed. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so uh, I think uh, you're referencing sort of two different chapters, but they, they're very related. And, and I think, you know, I don't want to skip too far ahead, um, but one of the, the sort of really interesting um, end results of this book project was to sort of see these different pieces of society come together and to read the critiques that are made by these different writers and filmmakers about, um, for example, not just e the economy, but also the way that we educate ourselves or are educated, not by ourselves in some instances. So, so maybe we'll, we'll, we'll start there. Um, and the idea that we don't need no education. Um, that, so a lot of these chapters uh, were initially uh, conference presentations in various academic venues. Um, and there was always this desire uh, to sort of spark a debate or a controversy, and I saw. I thought, well, this title, you know, is very controversial. Um, first of all, the the grammatical faux pas in the in the title. We don't the double negation. It's you know, um, but I think what it does is it signals again that um, the way that we understand um, success or wealth or educated um, those terms. Are, are embedded within a particular worldview. Uh, and so, again, to be educated typically is understood within a Western framework of possessing a certain number of degrees that signal the accumulation of a certain number of hours of activity that is dictated or mandated by some authoritative figure. Um, and so there were really um, two very interesting films by uh, a Central African director whose name is Basek Bakobio. Um, the first one is, is Sango Malo or The Village Teacher, which also is a novel. And the second one, Silence of the Forest or Silence de la Forêt, uh, is, is, is uh, a, a film that, and both of them stage the protagonist as, a, as an educator, but an educator who is reflective and critical of his educational practice. And so there are really two, um, two main sort of tangents to, to those films. Uh, one is to view education in practical terms, uh, which is to say, again, what, what are we producing through this education? Are we producing independent, free-thinking individuals who are engaged in a community for the mutual benefit of the collective? Or is education intended to sort of separate, individualize, and uh, create this uh, spirit of competitiveness? Um, and that sort of juxtaposition is very clear in the opening scenes of, of, of the film Sango Malo. Um, so that's, you know, that's, again, part of it is uh, practical and kind of economic in, in nature is what what is this educational training and development of the individual or the collective accomplishing? The second sort of side of that is more metaphysical, I think, perhaps more spiritual, more religious. Um, and, you know, there's a distinction to be made between spiritual and religion um, that, you know, we can go into if we have time, but, <laughs> but really it, it, it's the idea that, again, there are other forms of knowledge 
other than facts and figures. Um, there are ways of intuiting, of understanding, of knowing, and of engaging perhaps more directly uh, with, with the world. Uh, and that world is unique and specific to different experiences. We have this tendency in the West to think of globalization and a one-size-fits-all solution for any problem um, that disregards uh, particular cultural and ecological realities. And I think that's um, where I sort of really begin to engage with this question of ecology and, and, and belonging is to exist in relation with the environment as a sort of symbiosis rather than an extractive, exploitative, methodological approach to take whatever one can from the environment. Uh, so thinking about the environment as an agent that acts and the human as also uh, an agent and a recipient of the agency of the environment. So it's much more um, a sense of what, what can be learned uh, from sort of what can be learned from the environment, what can be learned from elder generations, what can be learned from different cultures. And that was really another, I guess, main focus of my book overall was to sort of critique this notion that the dominant West has uh, perpetuated through media. Again, that Africa is a space of, you know, and this goes back to sort of the, the old colonialist ideologies. Africa is a negative space that is therefore in need of colonization, civilization, exploitation, you know, okay. economic development. Um, and so to sort of turn that around and ask the question, well, what can a Western audience actually learn from a different cultural perspective? Uh, such as those that are presented by these different writers and filmmakers. And so while you're speaking, it reminded me of one of Fanon's work um, mentioned how the scholar who uses a marabou, oh. <laughs> and I remember I stopped, I was like, oh, that's me. <laughs> um, so I was like, oh, what, like, what does that mean? <laughs> I remember stopping and like thinking, because I had a previous incident <laughs> um, where I was like, oh, that's like two different worlds. Those, those, you don't have a scholar who uses like maraboutage, like that's not a thing. Yeah. <laughs> you right. know, you can walk into acad in a, in a USA American university and be like, well, I'll get back to you on that paper. <laughs> Let me just check in um, real quick with uh, my... Right. So right. it's it's like these two worlds of combining it and making it seem normal, yeah. as opposed to like making it seem barbaric or some sort. Yeah. Oh, that's. Uh, I mean, of course. I think again, there's um, there's a lot more sort of multi uh, multicultural belonging. Um, in the world than we sort of are maybe willing to recognize on a, on a daily basis. Um, and again, it, to me, it always seems to come back to this question of language. So, you know, we exist within our sort of linguistic structures. Um, and one of the, the, the terms that I introduced relatively early on in the book is this uh, notion of echolinguistics. 
which again sort of plays with this relationality between object and subject, agent and 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 environment, in that the way that we speak of our environment actually creates the reality of that environment. So if we continuously talk about GDP, economic growth, these numbers, mm-hmm. um, then that's going to influence the way that our reality is experienced. Whereas if we talk about other things like um, care or compassion or empathy or enthusiasm, then those are going to structure the way that we experience reality. Um, and I think, you know, to some degree, uh, there is a sense that perhaps we should normalize, um, or at least we could normalize, um, engaging in multiple different versions of reality, which I think we all do to a certain degree, um, thinking of linguistic code switching, for example, depending on, on context. Um, now, to come back to, to the example of the maraboutage, which I really like that you brought that up. Um, so there's a there's a, a an Ivorian writer uh, Jean Marie Adiafi uh, who you know in 1980 I think published the Identity Card. Um, he 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 did a number of projects. He's a philosopher. He's a poet. He published Silence on Develop in 1992, which is just this magnificent book. And he does in his work what I think a number of the writers that I engage with in my um, in my book, um, including uh, Were Were Liking, who sort of is, you know, Cameroonian and also uh, later emigrated to Cote d'Ivoire, um, they 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 deconstruct textual codes in the way that they write, and so you know, there's a tendency to think about genre, the novel, as as a fixed sort of static structure, and what they do in their writing is they introduce sort of theatricality and and a, a poetic uh, quality to the text by by interjecting these different genres so that um, what what to come back to this maraboutage Adiafi talks about uh, magic um, and this is you know this comes up uh, I've seen similar quotes in Neddy Okrafor I've seen uh, you know similar ideas portrayed in um, uh, Batuala by René Maron which was uh, mm-hmm. published in 1921 I think yeah, so um, these these idea it's the idea that you know we um, we differentiate terms where you know well this is science or this is medicine and that is magic and that is superstition well who's who's saying that first of all um, and there's again this you know inherent sort of superiority that's involved in this colonialist mentality which views its own ways as the best ways. And one thing that I try to do is deconstruct that hierarchy and that value by saying, well, better is better, but different is just different. <laughs> so let's start with that. Um, but he has this quote that, you know, for example, you know, there are good doctors and bad doctors. Uh, this is René Maron. Uh, there are good doctors and bad doctors. There are good sorcerers and bad sorcerers. And that sort of puts things on a level foot playing field. Now, we would not question um, someone who says, you know, to, to come back to your example, you know, I'll get back to you about my article, but I need to consult with my counselor first or my therapist, <laughs> right? The words matter. Um, but if you're going to go consult with a marabou, again, 
you have to understand that within a cultural context, you're essentially doing the same thing. Uh, so it's, it's very, yeah, because it's, I mean, it's, it doesn't matter how old you get in certain cultures. It's, if it's a conference, like I have to consult with my mom. And if my mom says, I'll get back to you, <laughs> right. you know, there's not much I can, I mean, you can go, but right. it's, it's, it's sort of like, you know, you're, it's like, well, what's going on? It's like, well, um, I'm just waiting back to here. <laughs> right, right. And and I mean, we all do that. No, we, there's no way that we can operate in a vacuum. We all consult, uh, you know, colleagues, uh, elders, you know, family members. We all have those people in our life that we sort of uh, look for uh, guidance from. Um, and I think, you know, to I think it's I think it's somewhat naive and dismissive to say that this particular form of guidance is, you know, strange or bizarre. Mm -hmm. um, and this other one is, is normal and regular. So I, I, I really, I'm very interested in, in kind of deconstructing and, well, this. What I can say is um, it did, it did help for me to see that. Oh. Let's say in the example that I was in, you know, when my mom was like, it's not a good idea for you to go come to find out wherever I was going to go was shut down anyway. Mm. So I was like, oh, okay, maybe there, this is, this is something I should, <laughs> Yeah, you know, it, it's a, it's a science behind it that right. it's not quantifiable. Right. Um, but depending on what context you're explaining it, if I'm explaining it to an, in an African context, they're like, oh, that's, yeah, your mom had a point. She, she somehow saw what was yeah. happening. Right. Um, but if you explain it in another context, then we're like, well, that's just pure luck or <laughs> it's right. a coincidence. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I think the fact that you expand the definition of how we view sci-fi or what we consider science um, really does, it allows for some Francophone text to be included in the realm of like yeah. Afrofuturism. So. Yeah, right. And that was really what I wanted to to do was as I was reading these books, and I mentioned, you know, as early as 1921, these writers are sort of, um, you know, expressing what would later become Afrofuturist perspectives, um, but in such a a, a minor subgenre, you know, Francophone African literature, and you know, one of the ways that I explain my book project is. You know, when you say African literature, already you arrive at a certain degree of alienation when speaking to a Western audience. They're like, oh, that's different, <laughs> right? And then you add Francophone to African literature, and they're like twice removed. Like, And so, you know, approaching it with, you know, through the lens of Afrofuturism, I thought it's, it's a way to sort of familiarize um, the difference, uh, to make it more accessible. Uh, and one of the things that I struggled with was finding sci-fi narratives in the Francophone context. So a lot of the works are, are futurist in their inception. I mean, when I think about the post-colonial condition as something that's pros prospective, you know, what could this be? What might this be? What will this be? Writers from the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, um, in Francophone Africa are all in, engaged in this project of, yes, let's, you know, we can analyze the past and then rebuild a new future. 
but there isn't the sort of um, stereotypical presence that we're expecting in sci-fi narratives of a spaceship or a metal object, test tubes, mm -hmm. these sort of basic objects of what we consider science based on 19th century positivism and all these um, philosophical developments. And so I thought, well, why, why do we have to view science in that sort of limited way? Science can also be, uh, again, so uh, I, I have a forthcoming article um, in a special issue of, of a journal called Nokoko on African futures. Um, and the title's uh, Speculation, Spiritualism, and Science Fiction. Um, so again, trying to, to, to see the ways in which, you know, sci-fi is speculative fiction, but from a particular perspective that has a particular understanding of science. Mm -hmm. And so if we look at a different perspective of science, of knowing, of experiencing, of understanding and engaging with reality, then we have a different conception of what those science fictions could be. And so a lot of times uh, we'll have tropes in African literature where there's, uh, you know, for example, a shapeshifter you know, or, or a, a, a spiritual entity uh, that exists, right? Um, and when you translate that worldview into the worldview of science fiction from a Western perspective, you're essentially dealing with extraterrestrial beings. They are from sort of, they occupy a different plane um, in the sort of existential sphere that we occupy. Uh, so again, sort of, again, mixing those notions, I think was, was something that I found really beneficial um, and sort of expanding what, what science is. Um, which I think is really, you know, rich for and potential for, for building, you know, future discourses. Well, if science has led us here, then maybe a different kind of science may be needed to help us move forward. And also education. I think that was that chapter. Um, I felt red. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it caused me to sit down a little bit and be like, well, what are your influences? Um, how do how do i phrase this if i'm critiquing a work on what basis i'm like i may think to me to fatima said i'm like well i'm cynical but am i critiquing it based off of my western education um because it's not something you just easily remove out of yourself it's something that's ingrained in you and that you can so it takes I think you call for a reflection, not just for like, right, but also scholars to reflect on how we critique works um, and make sure how much we, how much our Western education influences us because Western education is, it's just omnipresent that it's very, it's, it's just, I don't think, I mean, I knew, but when I read your chapter, you quite, you really articulate how, listen, this is something that we can't get away from. It's everywhere. It's pretty much infused in all corners of the earth. Um, so if we have to come to a different understanding and accept different experiences and in indigenous knowledge, mm -hmm. we have to separate ourselves from Western education and make room for this other type of knowledge. Um, 
which caused me to go back to my thesis. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like it kind of be like, okay, where did I come up with this? Like, actually, who did who came up with this idea? Was it me? Was it yeah. passed down to me? Or um, kind of thinking through the origin of our thoughts? Yeah, uh, and I think what what you're saying resonates uh, with me. I I, <laughs> I experienced a moment where. Um, sort of early on in my uh, in my tenure track uh, here at Arizona State University, when I thought to myself, I've been in school for you know thirty some years, you know K through PhD, and then in academia for a number of years, and I, I really had to I, I had to take a moment and step back and think, well, what you know. I've been I've been focusing on this you know singular educational sort of environment for so long. What other environments may potentially exist outside of that? Um, and I had a you know a semester of of, of pre tenure leave to sort of work on this book project and really flesh out those ideas. Um, and I think uh, you know not to not to come to oversimplify, but to come back around to the idea of of the the metaphor of the garden and picking different flowers, savoring their fragrances, and then ultimately compiling a bouquet based on what fits well together. Uh, understanding that you are sort of steeped within a particular educational tradition is the, the first step to then sort of being able to maybe begin to look beyond and understand what other options may exist. Um, and I think that is also true uh, of the economy. Um, and one of the one of the really interesting books that uh, that I use is by a Cameroonian writer whose name is Jean-Pierre Becolo, uh, also a filmmaker, a brilliant filmmaker, thinker, writer. Uh, you know, really. Um, uh, but his book is Africa for the Future, uh, which was published in two thousand nine, and you know that gave me the idea again that. Yes, what is a future that comes out of Africa versus a future that is pushed onto Africa? Um, and he says, you know, in, in, in one of his you know, chapters or, or, or sections of this book, uh, in talking about the economy, he uses a metaphor of a needle in a hole. Mm -hmm. And he says, you know, we run around spending so much time looking for a needle, you know, I think about a needle in a haystack in order to pierce a hole in, in some cloth or something. Um, and what we don't often realize is that there may be other ways to make the hole in the cloth than the needle. And so this is an economic metaphor in that we spend a lot of our time pursuing money um, to such a degree that we begin to perceive money as the end in and of itself. Um, and if we if we recognize that, we can then remove ourselves and understand that, well, what we really want is food and comfort and happiness and companionship. Um, but we've been so sort of educated in this mindset that, well, money is what you need to get those things that we don't ever imagine that perhaps we could find alternative ways to get happiness, love, affection, food, comfort, and so on. Um, 
so I, I, I really like that perspective, and it, and it relates just as much to education um, in that what are we doing when we pursue education? Well, we're pursuing uh, profit. You know, we're, we're pursuing degree because we are believing that it's going to pay back in financial terms uh, versus, you know, the sort of altruistic idea that, well, education for, for the edification of the soul and the mind um, that has has long since become, you know, secondary tertiary or tertiary um, in many educational endeavors. So thinking about, you know, what it is ultimately versus sort of this this secondary layer of, of significance that a lot of times is, is imposed upon our the reality that we experience. And again, usually through language and media and things of that nature. <laughs> And I'll use this opportunity um, to segue into how this drive of wanting to obtain money and this education, it's tied to the need for some African people to move to a different place, whether it's the Europe or states. But, you know, you talk about this construct of here and over there, where over there is seen as the place of happiness the grass is greener on the other side. Um, all these different images, this this artificial paradise, as you say. Yeah. And it's all false narratives. So I, there's two arguments you make, which I really like. Of course, there's Fatu Jones, Vance mm. Atlantique, um, that I remember reading when I first came to the States. And it was very trippy. <laughs> I think it's time to reread it again. But it was just very trippy because it's like I first moved. I read the book. I was like, I don't think I'm ready to digest this. So I put it away. <laughs> um, but how, you know, African writers and filmmakers really make the argument in case of it's not that great. It's not as you know great as you think. And it's really, um, we don't talk about the unsuccessful stories in life. Uh, we don't talk about the the hardship and the obstacles, or better yet, we don't talk enough, even though it's shown on the media, but we don't talk enough about what people do to risk their lives to go across um, to the other side. And, you know, it's just so many things that at the end of the day, it's rooted in this this image of, if you come here, it's better. Really, it's not. <laughs> right. It's... Um, it's not to say that there are like there are no success stories. There are, um, yeah. and those of course are you know respected, but also, it's these dream chasers that um, it's a many of these writers and filmmakers. It's a cautionary tale of, yeah, you know, be careful. Right. Uh, yeah. So I'm I'm glad that you that you brought that up, um, and. It is, it is related. And I will say that I think that chapter is perhaps one of the more beastly chapters in the book in that it's so dense. Um, and the reason for that... It's quite grim. Well, yes. <laughs> was a, yeah. I did the draft phase. Yeah. It, was, it was quite... Um, right. And, yeah. and, and again, so a lot of these sort of... There is a, a, a personal element that, that comes out in... in as, as I'm going through these narratives of emigration, which I just kept finding more and they kept multiplying. And I thought, well, how do you, you know, decide to exclude this one and include this one? Um, and so I, I ended up just maybe including more than, than I needed. But, but 
it, it came from a space of, um, you know, after I, depend, I defended my PhD from the University of Minnesota, I, I you know, was pursuing employment. Um, and uh, there were a number of positions, you know, visiting positions, and I moved around. And I remember uh, at some point when I was working on this, uh, this chapter, it's like, you know, this job that I have now that I left that job for is not better. Uh, it's different. Um, and it, you know, that idea sort of resonated with me and it allowed me to, to, to better understand the perspective of these immigrant narratives in that, well, yes, so we have this idea that somewhere else is going to be better. And if that idea is reinforced through media narratives, um, and again, it's, it, it all stems from this dominant colonialist ideology that Europe is superior for you know, reasons that Europe invented. Uh, and so thinking about, again, sort of Afrofuturism and science fiction, uh, you know, there's, there's this, this vein of thought that we see even today, you know, let's, you know, let's go colonize Mars. Um, or, you know, let's, let's fly to the moon or at the center of the earth or, you know, the, all these Jules Verne narratives of, of where else can we go that's not here. Um, so that is, you know, a, a really prominent part of, of sci-fi discourses. And in these immigra- emigration narratives, it's similar. Um, you know, we don't know what's over there, but we have an idea that it could be better than here. And so we're going to risk it. We're going to fly to the moon. We're going to, you know, sail to Europe. And so that, that link was really interesting. Uh, and sort of on both sides, there's this notion of feeling like there's opportunity elsewhere. Um, and then on the other side, upon arrival, recognizing, well, now I'm in, you know, an alien space, uh, thinking about, again, psychological alienation, exile, all of these experiences of difference that occur in these emigration narratives, and how that also plays into it. Um, so, you know, there's, a, I'm not sure if I talk about it in the book, uh, but there's a film by Moussa Sen Absa, who's a, a Senegalese director, uh, it's called Ainsi Meurent les Anges, or, or so, and so die the angels. Um, and it is, it's a reverse emigration story of, you know, an individual who emigrated to, I believe, France or somewhere in Europe, uh, married, you know, had a, had a life. And then, you know, it just wasn't working and returned home and sort of had this, this shame of not having come back with the success story. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think, you know, those kinds of narratives, uh, they do, a, uh, they do a, a very important work in expressing uh, the reality of, you know, the experience over there and the experience over here are different experiences. Um, and then what I try to do in my project is, is to conflate the two and think, well, here and there, again, are these constructs. Uh, we are always right here um, and always over there, uh, mm-hmm. simultaneously occupying these in-between spaces. Uh, and I think one of uh, Sisako's films, uh, Erimakono, uh, 
and, a, and an earlier film by uh, Senegalese director Jibril Diop Mambeti, Tuki Buki. Both of those yeah. films are sort of emigrant journeys, but the emigrants never leave. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's this idea of, you know, the journey itself, um, the journey, the dream again. You know, we're chasing the dream, and that's really what it is, whether it's, you know, an educational dream, an economic dream, or an emigrant dream of, of, of space uh, that will allow for you know whatever the dreams are to occur, they're 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 inherently uh, fictions in that you know they're they're stories that we tell ourselves that you know this will be better somehow differently. Um, so yeah, I liked I liked that. And Fatou Diom's Le Ventre de l'Atlantique is a really um, powerful mm-hmm. depiction of that other side of you know I left over there, or I left here and went there, or I left there and went here, depending, again, on the perspective. And from, from that vantage point, she recognizes that the sort of the fictionality of those narratives that, you know, success is, success is white, success is European, success is financial, success is, you know, uh, professional uh, versus perhaps a different conception of success being uh, to feel that one belongs in a community, to feel that one has a purpose in one's vocation, or to feel uh, that uh, one is 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 producing something beneficial for uh, for oneself and for others. Um, and how she she pits this argument of if you're going to leave, then do it on your own terms. Um, did you make this argument of how Fatuja, well, not Fatuja, the Sally the, with the narrator mm-hmm. leaving, uh, the, the protagonist, she deterritorializes um, this concept of France, but then she is re-territorialized as the other, yeah. um, making her really not belong in either or. Um, and I think that's a narrative that sometimes it's not often promoted enough because it's either we see like we always see someone as belonging here or belonging there. But oftentimes people just don't belong anywhere, <laughs> especially when they move. They just don't belong. And I think that's why when I read it, when I first came to the States, um, I resonated with the novel because she would say every time I go home, I felt like I was going abroad. <laughs> and then that's how I felt because I was still trying to adjust. And you're adjusting underneath so two sets of social constructs that are two different worlds operating under two different you know, social constructs, different hierarchies, um, and you're left alienated. Um, so it's this this sense of alienation that we see in you know the chapter birthing future in the in the novel of Maria Mava, Veronicajo, of mm-hmm. this metisage, this um, you do so the way I, I would really interpret it, you speak about different types of metis. So there's the actual metis person, there's textual metisage, yeah. there's cultural, you know, um, metisage status. Yeah. There's the metis logic, like um, metis logic. That's mm-hmm. also something to consider. Um, but yeah, and I, I've been, I've always used the word. So far, I've used the word in betweenness. Yeah. But I think now I can use. I found a, a terminology to use this. Yeah. It's a metis, um, yeah. using metis beyond just what mm-hmm. it means 
embodying in a person. So instead of Matisse only signifying a person who's of black and white, you know, heritage, but just even a Matisse psych. Um, yeah. And we see that in embodied in the protagonists that also chapter two is not the happiest chapters, no. <laughs> but it was, it was really a chapter that where African women writers are saying, well, they end up dying. So what is that telling us that these futures that they're saying, um, the words of Senor yeah. have not been realized. And um, yeah. it's, um, it's sad, but there's a sense of comfort that it gives me because I'm like, this is true. This is real. Right. Yeah. Um, and, and I'm glad that you brought up those different, uh, different specific applications of metissage. Uh, because as I was sort of developing this concept, I thought, well, there's there's a lot more to it. Um, and so I think, you know, when we look at Were Were the King, for example, uh, the textual métissage, I mentioned it also in Adiafi, um, Georges Ngal's novel also uh, does it, where, you know, they're mixing uh, an attempt to infuse written discourse with the feeling and spontaneity of orality. Uh, which is, you know, an inherent element to many indigenous African cultures. And so that sort of textual métissage became a way to think about uh, racial mixing, métissage. Um, and I really like Weri Weri Leaking's title, uh, you know, the new race, El, the future race, it shall be of jasper and coral. Uh, and just thinking about, you know, thinking about jasper and coral and the colors uh, that are, you know, they're much more um, vibrant. Um, and so I think using that in instead of black and white is a way for her to sort of comment on racial difference, but to do it in a way uh, that kind of, again, deconstructs, well, you know, the stereotypes of black being this and white being this, which are stereotypes that are essentially mm -hmm. created by, again, European colonialist imperialist discourses. Uh, and, and, and then, you know, within that, I found, you know, a number of characters who were sort of culturally Métis, like Sally, for example, after she goes to France and she doesn't feel herself necessarily being French or Senegalese anymore, but occupying this sort of in-between third space, this, this Métis uh, way of, of, of existing that is, is really, again, um, less than ideal. Uh, for her, because it leaves her alienated. And I think if we go back to the second chapter on birthing the future, those writers are are very much sort of prefiguring mm -hmm. uh, Sally's experience, although they're doing it primarily in, in racial terms, uh, mm -hmm. there is also a cultural element to that. And I think, um, you know, uh, the idea of, of cultural schizophrenia is really, really, yeah. really poignant mm -hmm. uh, because you know, someone who occupies that in-between space does, you know, feel that anxiety. And uh, Ken Bougou's uh, Le Baobab Fou, mm -hmm. or the, uh, in English translation, is it the Abandoned Baobab? Yeah, right? Baobab. Which is, again, yeah, why... That's my favorite novel yeah. of all time. It's, 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 it's a wild one, but it, it's my favorite. <laughs> I agree. The first time I read it, I thought, that it is such a powerful narrative and it's so rich um, in sort of descriptions of 
the feelings and the emotions of not belonging, of seeing oneself from other perspectives and trying to reconcile those different perspectives in order to find a way to exist as a whole and complete person and not someone who's constantly split between different perspectives. Um, and even in the split, it tells us something that, that fracturedness, it's, um, it's, it's something that is prohibited for a Muslim woman mm-hmm. <laughs> to talk about that fractured and mm-hmm. to talk about how in that fracturedness, she's also aborting a fetus, which is once like another ban, another yeah. layer of just um, taboo, yeah. which she just completely exposes. She, she exposes a reality that, um, yeah, that is really just not want not to t- not to be talked about yeah yeah and and i think you know part of part of what what i find interesting in these 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 women writers uh particularly is you know that that sort of desire to voice what is typically considered unspeakable oh no 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 we we, we we're not going to talk about that that's you know that's something else. Uh, and then these writers are like, oh, yes, we're, we're going to talk about it. We're going to talk about, you know, biracial relationships. We're going to talk about intercultural existence. We're going to talk about uh, mental illness. We're going to talk about abortion. We're going to talk about sex and violence. And we're going to talk about everything. And I think what that does is um, it paints a portrait of society that is, uh, you know, it's 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 it is kind of sad and kind of dark, but at the same time, I think there are spaces for hope, and that's mm-hmm. what you know. What I try to do in these chapters is say, you know, again, we see these narratives, uh, these narratives of immigration, these narratives of 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 intercultural existence, and you know, they're complex and they're difficult and they're hard, but there's always this sense of, but you can get through it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you can you can work through it, and there are possibilities for experiencing that kind of alienated exile in a positive and affirming and beneficial way. To say, you know, this this world uh, is is not really ideal, but my existence in it can continue to have an impact, um, and to again, to maybe mix different, different worlds together in a way that isn't going to cause uh, kind of alienation, but maybe create spaces where people can be multiple um, and can be different um, and can also be together. Yeah, it's, um, it reminds me of, yeah, most of, some of the novels you've chosen, they either have an ambiguous ending or um, they have an ending my my, <laughs> my, my yeah. there most of these endings there was also one um i can't remember the novel but they were crossing the 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 water and a bird was flying over them and he was laughing hysterically as yeah. he was drowning yeah. on his way to i believe it was yeah. spain yeah, yeah. Um, but it's all these moments of yeah. humor satire but at the end it's this it leaves the reader with the feeling of you can still have the power to change things and navigate your way um, in this world by co- between these two worlds, actually, yeah. and kind of make a space for yourself. Yeah, and it's um, 
it's sad, but once it brings a sense of comfort. <laughs> I don't know. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely, uh, and I think you know those ambivalent endings are are really rich because what they what they do is they leave open the future possibilities. Um, and I think, you know, there's, there's this, you know, since we mentioned Mariam Abba, there's this, you know, this idea that, you know, this, this, this child that, you know, Mireille and Usman have together is, uh, they call it a nulul chesu, which mm-hmm. in Wolof means, you know, it's, 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 it's neither, neither here nor there. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and that sort of being is you know later embodied not in not necessarily in racial terms but culturally by Sally in Le Ventre de l'Atlantique that you know I'm you know what happens when neither here nor there you know develops and grows and becomes uh, an adult um, and there's uh, I think like you mentioned the bird for example or there's a lot of symbolism that sort of creates those spaces where in spite of the difficulty that you know. This can be a strength. This can be advantage. Not belonging anywhere can allow someone to become, in a way, a cultural chameleon, um, and to change, and to adapt, and to operate, and to exist in those different spaces. Um, and I think that's where it, it really sort of becomes a source of empowerment um, that these 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 writers are, are 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 not only for themselves, but are trying to then share with their audience, with their readers. That yes, being in between. Being Métis mm-hmm. is is difficult, and it's also a tremendous opportunity and a great strength. And it's it's just such a contrast with humanitarian uh, rhetoric of resilience. I hate that word. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, it's just you yeah. know, it's um, right. Yeah, their approach is more creative. Yeah, <laughs> it's it's yeah because the humanitarian aid rhetoric is just um, it's. Yeah. It's hiding behind this fake image of um, really it's a cycle of dependency. That's really all it is. Um, and I think the way I'm starting to understand resilience is you need to be resilient so I can keep doing what I need to do to you. Mm-hmm. So I can continually exploit you. Yeah. Um, therefore, you are resilient. Yeah. That's not a positive no. outlook. No, I, I agree absolutely that, you know, we, we've, again, the terms and the words and the language really is important. And when, you know, speaking of resiliency, for example, if you were to translate that, it's, you know, you're resilient, meaning you can continue to put up with more. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I don't want to use mm-hmm. the word that's coming to my mind at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's something, you know, that that's very clear in Aminata Soufal's, uh short story, La Fête Gâchée. Mm-hmm. Uh, that these humanitarian, she always uses humanitarian in quotation marks, which I think is is, is a brilliant uh, rhetorical strategy. It's so subtle and yet so significant uh, that these humanitarians are essentially dehumanizing, um, ironically. And I, I, you know, I really go into that uh, in depth in my chapter on on child soldiers as sort of another embodiment of this in betweenness, this mm-hmm. paradoxical notion of human and humanitarian and how, you know, humanitarian aid oftentimes just operates, uh, is, is, is a disguise for a, a different or, or, or more of the same types of mm-hmm. dependency. And there's a film by Usman Samben, uh, Gelwar, which mm-hmm. uh, I think from 92 or thereabout, 
Uh, and it also is sort of critical of this dispensation of aid, which then only goes on to perpetuate the cycles of dependency and, and lack of autonomy that are the primary motivation for these emigrant journeys uh, to sort of endanger themselves in, in the hopes of finding something better. Whereas if, if the aid were really aiding, then there would, there wouldn't be that problem. So there's, there's a lot of, you know, <laughs> terms that, that I, that I engage with and, and, and it's from a really a deconstructivist perspective to try to understand, you know, what is really meant by that? What is the signifier of that signified? So, yeah. So I know I could ask you more questions, but I think it's <laughs> we can kind of wrap up. Um, and you've you've spoken a lot about what you would want readers to take away. But when you were writing this book, mm -hmm. did you have um, a sort of reader in mind? Was it for um, the students? Was it for were you writing in with other scholars in mind? It's not exactly a beach read, um, but <laughs> but what what did you have in mind? Yeah. That's a really good question, um, and and I agree with you that it's uh, as a as a colleague said to me who you know who purchased my book he said c'est du lourd it's 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 heavy, um, and and I agree and so I think my motivation was was twofold. Um, one, um, I wanted to write a book um, that would engage critically with. Uh, sort of these dominant Western constructs of development discourse, humanitarianism, education, economic development, all of these different facets, um, in a way uh, that was sort of steeped in a humanistic perspective. So I don't want to do like sociological research on aid and development. I want to read what human narratives are experiencing from these different uh, developmental practices, and that's where I found you know the sort of richness of these these writers and these filmmakers um, in how they're critiquing society, imagining future societies, and doing it from an experiential perspective. Uh, so I wanted to sort of do that project for you know the field uh, in general to say you know what can fiction do besides entertain? Well, it can critique and it can imagine and it can, it can formulate alternatives. Second uh, sort of motivation was uh, to find a way to teach students um, about African literature in a way that resonates not just as well that's an exotic strange story but that's a story that is embedded in a society that i also am embedded in and i can relate to it and i can understand it from my perspective so to really try to create that bridge for students in the classroom to be able to understand africa in a more significant and meaningful way rather than the typical media representations that you know we don't need to go into uh, because <laughs> there's there's too much um too much superficiality and simplicity i think a lot of times um, so that's you know part of the reason why i think it's it's a it's a complex project um 
but I think what I really want um, for readers to take away, whether academics, intellectuals, uh, or, or, or you know, students or, or graduate students, is to understand that uh, difference is normal and difference is everywhere and that difference is actually a positive thing um, and that understanding different perspectives can enrich our experiences and can lead to more inclusive, sustainable, um, and accessible futures, not just for some of what Didier Fassin calls hierarchies of humanity, but again, for the entirety of humanity. And so that deconstructing of those, of those, um, those biases that exist, I think, is, is really what I wanted to try to promote. And to return that question back to you, how did um, the process of writing, editing, thinking, <laughs> you know, um, I guess change you um, at the end of this book? Did it lead you to other ideas? I know you spoke about yeah. the speculative spiritualism. Yeah. That's a very cool word also, yeah. but it's, it's catchy. Yeah. <laughs> Um, <laughs> well, that's but, um, yeah. how did the book <laughs> well. That's that's my own little attempt at textual uh, metissage, is you know to be a little poetic in my titles and use some alliterative <laughs> words. But uh, the yeah, I think you know it it was it was a long process uh, going from you know I think conference papers uh, you know from from years ago that you know developed into chapters and then combining you know all these different ideas into into the book project. Uh, it was a long process. Um, and I think immediately after receiving the published text, uh, I sort of had this moment after having gone through the editorial process and the copywriting and copy editing and all this stuff, I looked at my bookshelf with all the titles that had gone into this singular book. And I kind of just thought, you know, that's done. I don't, I want, I want to do something different. Uh, and so there was this, this moment of really almost like, you know, I, I don't want to be too, you know, um, but almost like birthing a, a future of like, well, now, now what else can I do? That I, there, there are opportunities. And so I think, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm really interested in, in spiritualism. Um, and again, trying to understand different ways of experiencing reality and the words mm -hmm. that we use to sort of name that reality. Um, mm -hmm. And also, you know, eco-critical eco perspectives you know, and how the two can, you know, if we relate to nature as a sentient being or as a collection of sentient beings, uh, then that's going to change our approach to understanding, you know, well, nature is living, so maybe we shouldn't just dump chemicals and pesticides all over it. You'd think, uh, you know, reversing the perspective, it's like, well, we look at these bugs as, as problematic, and, well, the bugs look at us as problematic because we're, we're poisoning their environment, right? Um, and sort of understanding that difference. I'm glad you said that. I yeah. always think, like, when I see an ant on me, I'm like, I wonder what you think of me. Yeah. <laughs> I would, he's right. like, you are in my way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just, and so that I mean that's a that's a really big part of I think where I'm going now is you know I'm, I'm really interested in sort of um, you know animist thought mm -hmm. as a way to engage with eco-critical discourse. Um, so understanding that nature is alive and, and and existent is sort of a way to 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 create alternative methods of of engaging with the environment. Uh, 
And I guess lastly, I think something that I'm really interested in that is really just you know a germ is, is coming back to this question of the economy mm-hmm. and what a different economy would look like. So I, I have this premise that uh, is just a premise, but you know, what if the money was gone? <laughs> How would society function? Like what alternative modes of exchange and value might we envision, develop and 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 create for a different economic future. And that's really just spec- purely speculative at this point. I, I don't have the answer. I can't even begin to approach the answer, but it's an interesting thought uh, problem to say, you know, what if, if money is the animating force of our society in its absence, what else might take its place? And I think, you know, I'm kind of hinting at maybe a more ecological and relational perspective there, so. That, that that's a that's a good way to end this just with more thinking right. there's always more questions than answers i've found questions. yeah yeah but thank you so much dr jocelyn this has been such a great conversation um yeah i'm i'm just super excited that and i also really like the cover um i never i wanted to ask you yeah. about that very sorry i'm asking you at this no not a problem at all um the cover design was uh, by adonis dorado um, AdonisDorado.com, um, and it was, uh, you know, it was really done by the the team at Ohio University Press. Uh, they sent me a few, you know, examples, and I sort of said, "Well, I like this, and I like this," and 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 ultimately, you know, this is what they came up with, and I couldn't be more happy with it because I think what it does is it creates a visual of the complexity that is, you know, the process of, of writing and imagining different worlds and different futures. It's got, you know, there's, it's, it's almost like a, like a trompe uh, l'oeil. You you look at it and your eye is, is constantly drawn to other, other spaces and other, other sort of details. I think, yeah, I really like the cover too. It's everywhere. But thank you so much. Thank you. Um, love to have you back on soon. <laughs> I would love to continue talking with you, Fatima uh, Sek. This has been absolutely uh, a pleasure for me. Uh, and I, but I do understand that time uh, is uh, still a, a reality that we haven't been able to, uh, to negotiate our way out of quite yet. So.